Kids' church in the right way. The Plains Church, we do not dismiss children. We invite them. Um, thank you for that reading. Lots of people are thinking we must have won some contests for getting the shortest names we have in the book of Numbers all summer. Uh, with no weird names on top of it. And not only that, in this odd book that many people don't know a lot about, one of the most familiar passages is this blessing that comes from chapter 6. The Lord would bless you and keep you. Lord that be near you and the place to shine upon you. That this sort of thing is something we hear often. That it's, it's something that still connects synagogue and church together in a very real way. That, that services are ended in both traditions oftentimes with this blessing, numbers. And so this here is our 11th sermon, the last in the book of Numbers, the last one in the book of Numbers. And Kelly told me I'm not allowed to cry today saying goodbye to, to this book. Um, but it's been a, a great time for me, and it's been a great time to sort of dive into a, a book that I often thought would be one of the harder ones in this series of sort of walking through the Torah, but also one that I thought would just be sort of snippets without a coherent theme. But it seems as we read through this book and as we sort of journeyed with it, that we began to find this theme with some stuff emerging of this people who have been called out of slavery and who are being gifted with this land, and yet they grow in frustration and murmur along the way. So God, sort of, uh, what Brian read for us has them sort of all passed into the wilderness. But as we, in the first Sunday, read the two censuses, we looked censuses. We looked at the census at the start of the book of Numbers, where they count all the people, and we compared that with the last census, where they count all the people again. And God has been faithful to His promise and bought, brought near the exact same amount of people through. It is though many fell in the wilderness, as all of the generation that left slavery fell in the wilderness. This people who come out the other side numbers about the same. We get our title for this is Numbers. Um, numbers about the same at the other end. And so God has been faithful to this. And one of the things that, that as David and I talked about this at the beginning of the summer was that this would be a good passage to end on, this blessing. It's this blessing that sort of, you can imagine them hearing along the way. The blessing that sort of takes its origin in sort of the tabernacle or in the place where the people are, and it's spoken out to them. The blessing that they would have known well by the time they make it throughout the wilderness in 40 years. The other side, this blessing might mean something different to them. But it's a blessing also for their travels. It's hard in Numbers 8 through 6 to look at this and say, this, with these words, is going to be a trial the whole way through. Things at the beginning of this story seemed to be going very well. The people were listening and going along the way. And it's not until chapter 11 that it really begins to fall apart. And fall apart because quite horribly, as we found out over the, over the summer. But it's these words that begin sort of their blessing that call them out. One of the reasons I think that is, as we've looked at the structure of the book of Numbers, and I haven't said this for a couple weeks, is that it's remembered in in Israel's literature at other points as this time of wooing, that God is sort of calling them out into his love. They look back at the time in the wilderness almost with this fondness for the way that God was there to them. Which, if you've been with us this summer in these sermons, that seems near impossible to think of. And yet we remember things backwards differently than we do in the moment. 
where it seems is that these people have found that what they, what they needed was this time of God restoring them and bringing them back. In Deuteronomy, the next book, which we hit next summer, we're all looking forward to it greatly, um, uh, is, has, this, um, has this phrase where it says that this time you hated God when you came out of the wilderness. That this first generation leaving slavery had no other recourse but to hate this unfamiliar nature, leaving behind what they knew so familiar, and, and go into this unknown place that it caused them to hate their God. So God had to bring them through this place of provision and caring for them, of retraining them. We've talked about this as, as sort of a therapy for their souls, of bringing them through this. Now, one of the things that, that we've talked about early that we haven't returned to as well as often is that the Torah, I think, is most often best read from Abraham onward as the story of one person, the person of Israel, the corporate identity of these people. And so it's almost like a biography of this person called Israel in that. Because when we read it as Western sort of individualized people, that's hard for us. Like, well, they do get to the promised land, except a lot of them die along the way. But the notion of passing on name, passing on lineage, passing on land, stretching beyond ourselves was much more important in these ancient cultures than it is in ours. For instance, Abraham dies with a family of about I can't remember, 20, even though God said they would be as numerous as the stars, and God said that they would have a land and a place, and all they own at that moment is the cave that he's buried in. And Abraham is not upset about this, because he believes in the lasting promises of God. Now, I don't know about you, but if God said I would have numerous descendants, and I have barely any, and lots of land, and all I own is my grave, at the time of my death, I think frustration might be a kind word, or at least pondering and wondering, what did he mean? Um, and yet in this time, in this place, there's this notion of lineage, of this passing on, this thing. And so I think it's helpful for us to think of Israel as this one person. And so as we've looked at this graph as, as sort of the story of our lives as single people as well, or the story of our church as people, is we come from a slavery generation and we move into a freedom generation. One of the things that, that became apparent for me this week is I was thinking about that they, we have a, a, from the Exodus generation on, which is that sort of timeline of the way we've talked about this, is we have this one of, of disrepair and of close. We have this notion is that the world is not as it should be. And on the other timeline, we have this notion of repair and of holiness, of wholeness, of God being near. This blessing we have for us today ends in the word peace, too, is that is that this is the way that this sort of goes on, is that we exist in sort of this timeline ourselves. We, we have this pull back to our old lives, the sin of, of death and, and sin and curse, and we have this new timeline that we've been placed on with Jesus Christ. And so why I tell this story is, is one of the rabbis said that this story for us is like a king whose son was sick, and so he took him to a distant place to heal him. On the way back, his father began to enumerate all the stages of the journey. He told him, here we slept, here we caught a cold, here you had a headache, here, etc. Is that he names the places of the journey on the other side as this way of sort of healing, that they went out. And so we've been on this journey, at least for me, both in myself as my soul, as the people of Israel, or as the person of Israel, has done this journey as well. 
sort of seen our lives in this way. Now, one of the things, the quote on the back of the bulletin for today is, um, there is a reality in blessing from my favorite novel, Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, that I don't recommend to people very often because I imagine they'll all hate it. Um, and that's hard when you really love something to find out that people don't like it as much as you do. There is a reality in blessing, is what the character John Haynes says in this novel as he's writing to his son as he's dying. There's a reality in blessing. And it's not something we think about often, but as we've been walking through this Torah series, our lives are so different from their lives. If I were to bless someone, if I were to hand out a blessing, people would go, oh, isn't that nice? There's a quaintness to it. And yet back in Genesis, there's a scene with these two brothers, and one goes in the stead of the other and steals the blessing that is for the other one. If you're familiar with this story. And what happens is, is that the other son comes in and he says, bless me, give me the blessing, and the father refuses. Now most of us think, what's the big deal? You made a mistake, they lied to you, they cheated you. Just lay your hand on them and bless them, all that doesn't matter anyway. And yet for these people, we saw it last week in the Balaam story of the two, there's a reality crafted in words. There's something that happened in words and space and blessing that actually means something. It makes worlds, it creates worlds, it brings something about. And there's only a few places where we see that today, but the first is in, is in sort of these two words. I do. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes. That's, is this what people say when they're asked in court cases too? You promised to tell the whole truth. Did they say I do there too? So there are two places where we sort of take on these things. But in marriage, language has this way of creating a reality. When you say, I do, there's a different thing that comes out of that. Do you take this person as your wife? Do you take this person as your husband? That something else is created, and you're bound together in a way that's not easily undone. It's made something. See, this would, would correspond to their idea of blessing even more, that something is made there. Now, one of my favorite theologians, Stanley Harawas, who says that he's coined Harawas' law, which is you always marry the wrong person, but it's equally true that then you always marry the right person, is his sort of phrase. But what he says about marriage is that people say they're different than the person I married, right? Once I got married, we moved together, they're different than I expected. What he says is that after saying I do, after performing this speech act, after making this public, you're not the same person on the other side of that was before you said that. Nobody comes out of that the same. To take that on is something that changes our character and who we are from that moment forward. So if you think about it, not to go on about marriage, but it's almost like a, a murder. You're forsaking all others for this person. You're leaving behind your parents and cleaving to something new. There's something radical that takes place in this act that I don't think we think about enough, but it connects us to what is blessing for these people. What does it mean to have blessings spoken into the world as it creates something, as it makes something new that wasn't there before? And so we have just few remnants of that sort of notion of blessing left in our world. But this blessing, and here it is in Hebrew, um, is, is written in a way that's almost po poetic in form. If, if somebody just wrote this blessing, if, if I gave you a first chance attempt to say, write a blessing, and you came out with something as 
symmetrical and as beautiful as this, first chance, no try, you would be incredibly lucky. Um, it either came as a gift from God or it came through a gift of tradition and honing it into something beautiful. But it has this way in which it goes from three words to five words to seven. And this three, five, seven is almost this outward movement of things. And seven, as we'll get to at the end, the last word is peace. Moves in this movement of three, five, seven. The syllables, I didn't come up with this graph, is actually wrong. I don't, it must have been an English speaker who came up with the graph. Um, the, the syllables in Hebrew are actually 10, 15, and 25. So there are three words, five words, and seven words. There are 15 syllables, 20 syllables, and 25 syllables. It almost has this rhythmic blessing to it. And it begins with each one of these lines that the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. There's these three sort of calling out of the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. This is how the priest is supposed to bless the people. Now in your English Bibles, it would say the Lord in all caps. And this is the personal name that God has given Moses from the firing bush. It's so much though, and this is an interesting thing, it's so much so that they didn't say this name. Most Christians are familiar with this, that, that we don't have the vowel. In Hebrew, the vowels are different than the um, uh, consonants, and we don't have the vowel for it because the Jews didn't write or say this name. I think there's a, a story about them when they were writing out the, one of the texts that they would go and sort of wash themselves every time they wrote this name, which means at least three washings for, for this short passage here. And this name had a holiness to it, but yet the... God commands them for the priests to say this name over the people. Now, most Jews, if you were to listen to this today online, they would say Adonai or El Shaddai or something like that. Most often, Adonai would be in its place. So they would say the Lord, instead of the Lord using God's personal name in Hebrew, they would say Adonai, which is sort of their stand-in. You know what they mean. You know what they're saying, but they're not saying it. It's sort of the way that we're functioning today. They're called to go out and to bless the people with these three times with this personal name over God. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face to you and give you peace is the way it goes. And they've come and they name this blessing on them. Now in the book of Numbers, this is um, right at this end of sort of ethical commands about how they're going to be separate in the world. There's uh, laws about cleanliness and purity and holiness in sort of five through, or five through six, yeah. Um, that the passage sort of walks through that again, but yet it ends oddly with this blessing. And it's almost like it's pointing towards that restoration day, that the day when things will be restored. It's that, in this path, in this way, it's pointing to something beyond what has just been given to them. It's pointing to, to a final sort of keeping that they haven't seen yet. And so it begins first with bless and keep. Now, if you look at it in English, I don't, uh, I do have the whole thing if you want to look at it real fast. That's not the whole thing. That's the whole thing. You can see it in, in sort of three parts. The Lord blesses and keeps. The Lord causes his face to shine, and then grace is the outpouring of that. And then he causes his face to turn towards, and then peace comes on the other side. So there's an instruction here of sort of that God is doing something, and then there's the result of that thing on the other side, sort of the way it's made. 
And so it fits in sort of a threefold, or in some people argue a twofold pattern. It's that the things after this blessing and keeping is sort of the, um, it's, it's fleshing those terms out. And, and this blessing and keeping in all these terms show up over and over again in the Hebrew scriptures. The psalm that was read for us today by Park at the communion service has a very similar structure to this blessing in the book of Numbers. But it begins with to bless and to keep. God has called these people out of Israel for a blessing. But not only that, if we go further back, the whole story of, of the Torah up until now is almost a story of blessing. It begins in the creation story that God blesses creation as goodness, and he blesses the seventh day as a day for God. And then it moves to another level of this blessing in Abraham's story, that God calls Abraham out of all the people, and he blesses him with the prayer, the, the blessing that we talked about, that he would have numerous descendants and be brought into a land that would be his people's own. But not only that, he's blessed again, and we've, we've hit this before, is that he's blessed to be a blessing. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. There's this calling of blessing that's sort of been going on from now. And so these two, these people are called out to be blessed by God, to have a space in the world, to have security in the world, that God would guard and be near them. The second of these words for this one is that God would keep them. Now there's something about Pharaoh living in Egypt. Pharaoh kept the people. He kept them there and enslaved. He kept them locked in the ways in which they were. But now the Lord will bless, not just keep, and he will keep them as well. He will guard them. It's almost as if this passage reads, is that God will give them gifts, and in keeping them, they will not become slaves to their gifts. See, there's a way in which we, and they, we take what we have been blessed with, and we make ourselves into slaves towards it. And so the rabbis, when they talk about this passage, they say that the keeping is that they belong to God. They don't belong to their possessions. They're not enslaved to their possessions. They're not blessed into this land so that they would just be free, but they're kept near by God. There's this also this way in which I keep things. We use this word in our lives today. I'm going to keep this memory. I'm going to keep this time. I'm going to keep this place. That they're being drawn near to God in his keeping. He's not just letting them off. And in this way, it calls out a character in the people that they're going to be, in some sense, ones who are blessed and kept by this God. The second is that the face would shine upon them, and that would give them grace. Now, we've talked about this in the Psalms, that face has this notion of presence. Now, when normally I talk about presence and face, people go, and uh, Kelly and I have had this conversation before, where the face means, oh, you've been caught. Um, and that's because Kelly was a teacher, and Shelly, you probably experienced this some too, is that when you see a student doing something that they're not supposed to do, or a parent sees a kid doing something they're not supposed to do, or you see somebody doing, there's this, the face means a presence that maybe doesn't always carry good news today. And yet, biblically, when God's face turns towards something, when something is before God's face, it's always almost a grace-like presence. In the Psalms, 
when God is unhappy, when God is not here, his face withdraws. His presence is no longer there. It's almost as if God's face turning something towards something is a blessing of itself. And yet if there is nothing there, if there is cruelty and sin, or if there is a destruction or addiction or something there, it's as not as if God comes and says, oh, I caught you, which is the way that we think of maybe God too much in the modern world, but that God turns aside, that his face and his presence is no longer able to reside in that space and in that place. And so it says that God's face would shine upon you. That God's face is to shine in this place. It's supposed to be like light. It's supposed to be like the dawning of a new day. See, again, the light, um, the deeds of darkness don't like light, but they flee. But light, things that can stand in the light, they become as if light. The Lord's face would shine upon you when you think about it, when you take that in and you think about it. Particularly back to Moses when he comes down from Sinai, and his face is shining because he's been in the face of God in some way. He's seen the glory of God. Is that for God's face to shine upon you is not only just because you would have presence and blessing in this, but so that you might shine as well. That that would radiate from you. And these people, as we've seen, called God's special possession, called out in the world to be this blessing, to be this light, as Jesus calls them, a light on a hill, is meant to be illumined by the presence of God's face turning towards them. To be a light in the world of darkness, to have God's face turn towards them. Which makes us grateful for the second part. That there would be grace Part of this we've seen in the book of Leviticus and Numbers is it's a dangerous thing to have God's presence near you. It's the fire that resides as a molten core in the center of the camp that you always um, uh, can always spill over if things get bad enough, right? Um, and we've seen that in the ways in which the land swallowed people, the ways in which the, the people have sort of been sort of consumed by fire, one of the first rebellions, is that to have this holy molten core of fire reside in the center of the camp, to have this face shine upon you, means that there's some weight there, there's something there. Um, and with weight comes, comes uh, the trial, the burden of having it. And so as the face turned towards you, it may be gracious unto you. That God would have grace as this face shines upon you. It calls out God's tempered judgment. It calls out God's mercy. And in the face turning, it calls out this reversal of fortune. That God is coming back as one who is grace. And we see that throughout the story. The blessing that, um, sorry, Dan. We see that in what Brian read. We always have three readings, and I always have to know which one. What Brian read is that story at the end is that these people were preserved is that God's grace preserves these things. It's not to say it's light and easy and fun all the time, but there is this way in which God's grace preserves through the end something, a remnant. And the last includes the face again, that the face would turn towards you and give you peace. This calls out this way in which God would pay attention and would the face would come towards us, and what comes out of this, this face coming towards us, 
this, this turning and this forward, is this notion of peace. The gods face in this place would come with peace. It's the final part of this blessing. Now it should be noted that, that the, the New Testament blessing used the most, particularly by Paul, is grace and peace. And many people see connection between this blessing and the shortened version of it, grace and peace, that comes in the New Testament. But we have this blessing that comes and ends in peace. Sorry. Um, that this peace sort of gives these people a hope. They are going to have this blessing, and they are going to spend 38 years wandering the wilderness with this blessing near to them. This blessing calls for a hope of that day when that peace will be true. This is not something that the people attained, and this is why it's clear that who gives this blessing? Well, the priests are called to give this blessing, but who gives this blessing? The Lord the Lord, the Lord. It comes three times from God, not from people. And it calls out something of a future. It's a, the, the, the nerd theology word for it is eschatological. It calls out something that may not be yet, but will be someday. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about the biblical virtue of hope. I was reminded of two things. One, I've been reading this book um, by sort of a, an actress, economistic thinker. He thinks out of time and place. But he says that what has a future? Um, people, we ask this question, what's this thing's future? And he always says that institutions have futures. People have hope. And he's throwing out this distinction that I always struggle with, is we think about institutions a lot. What is the future of this thing? The future is sort of this depersonalized thing in our context, whereas hope is intensely near to us. Institutions might have a future, but it's people who live on hope. Which brought me back to this, this amazing phrase from the theologian, philosopher, race theorist Cornell West when he was asked by a Rolling Stone, are you an optimist or a pessimist about the, the state of the world today? And he said, I'm not an optimist, I'm not a pessimist, but I'm a prisoner of hope. It's for Christians to be in that spot. To be an optimist is to oversee the problems that might be. To be a pessimist is to make too much out of the material at hand. But hope speaks of something beyond. It comes from some other place. G.K. Chesterton said something along the lines of, uh, you have to love the thing enough to want to change it, but you have to hate it enough to see what should be changed. Um, which is, I think, an important thought. That, that, that there are people who love something so much but they can't afford to see it changed. And then there are people who hate something so much, but they can't see a better future for it. That you have to love it enough to want to see it changed, but you have to hate it enough to know where it seems to be able to be changed. And so this final and seventh word of peace calls out this, this deeper reality for us. This blessing ends on this note of peace, peace, peace. It ends with this notion of, of a large word. This is shalom, which many, the one Hebrew word people really know, shalom, um, in Hebrew. And it's this notion of peace. And the problem, I think, with this is that peace in the modern world most likely means an absence of conflict. Peace is, is that there is no conflict in the space, no war. 
which is really kind of a scrummy like notion of peace. It worked because me and my twin brother, my parents could say they had peace because we weren't killing each other at the moment. But that's not actual peace if you really think about it, because um, we could have started killing each other in just about any provocation. Um, we have a very much too stagnant notion of peace. Peace is, doesn't have the fullness that this word shalom does. This is, this is what one Jewish theorist says about what's called outland peace. This peace which alone reconciles and strengthens, which calms and clears our vision, which frees us from restlessness and from bondage of unsatisfied desire, which gives us the consciousness of attainment, the consciousness of permanence even amid the transitoriness of ourselves, I had to practice that one, and of outward things. This peace goes beyond. It's, it's wholeness, it's well-being, it's, it's being freed from the bondage of unsatisfied desires. It gives us the attainment of consciousness of permanence, permanence even in a world that's always shifting and moving. Certainly the people of Numbers know what it means to be in a world of always shiftiness and moving. And yet this calls for them a peace and a place that goes beyond that, that goes deeper. And so it too is for us with this blessing to see what it means to be blessed and kept by God. What does it mean to have God's face shine upon us and be gracious unto us? What does it mean to have his face towards, turned towards us? Because what some people talk about the book of Numbers and the Torah being about is more about God's presence being with these people than about covenantal relationship, which is hard to, for us to get that because that's a shocker with Jesus, is that it's more about God's presence residing with these people and near to these people than it is about the covenantal relationship that he establishes. And if that's the case, this is something that clearly points to the presence of Christ amongst us. It's about God being near to people. It's about God touching God's people. It's about, for a time, God having a literal face that turns toward us and is gracious. A face that comes and proclaims peace. Jesus' words to the disciples in John's Gospel often, peace, peace, peace. So much so that it proclaims it to the place of the grave and raises it back up into new life. And so what Jamie read for us sentence today is that this name is placed upon them. This presence is placed upon them. That God has taken a people that was no people and made them a people. And with this blessing, names them in a way as his own that he blesses and keeps as his own, that he makes his face shine upon and is gracious with, and his own, that he turns his face towards and gives them a peace that is everlasting. Let's pray. God, you, by calling us out in the world, it's an act of blessing. We are blessed by you in more ways than we can count. God, we are one who is kept by you. We are brought near to you and your son, Jesus. And this keeping stretches into our lives. That his face 
shines upon us. Your face has taken up human residence and shined upon people. And your grace proclaims grace into the world. And that face is turned towards us even as we've driven that face to a cross. We proclaim, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. In the afterward, the resurrection, we proclaim peace begins today. May we hear the words of this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. In the words of the Apostle Paul, grace and peace to us today. God has been kind, for God has been near, for God has called us into the fulfillment of his promise. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.